again to everyone. I'm Anita, Policy Officer at EDSO and also today your host of our podcast. This episode is dedicated to what is probably the most intensively discussed topic at the moment, namely the wholesale electricity market design and how it can be future-proofed. We'll have this discussion with the person who knows it probably best. I'm obviously talking about Leonardo Meas, who was just appointed director of the Florence School of Regulation. At this point, also, congratulations from my side. Leonardo, you seem to be the man of the situation when we talk about reforming energy markets. You wrote a book on the evolution of the electricity markets in Europe, of which, when I'm not mistaking, we shall soon have an updated version. And in October, you brought forward your own recommendations via a blog post entitled The Fifth EU Electricity Market Reform, a Renewable Jackbird for All Europeans Package, which we read with great interest. So first of all, thank you so much for joining us for this episode and welcome. Thank you, Anita. I'm happy to be here. All right, then. So let's jump directly into the topic. I must say I'm very excited about this conversation we're having here today. We will try to capture some of the most important elements that will shape the future of the new electricity market. And as I said, it seems to be the lion's share of all the conversations we are having these days. So really the hot topic. The ongoing energy crisis, which is exaggerated by the war in Ukraine, is driving up the electricity prices for consumers all over Europe. And it has eventually led to this conversation, discussion we are also having here today on the design of the EU electricity market and its functioning or dysfunctioning. Many member states have called on the European Union and the Commission to do something about it. And indeed, the Commission has announced a few weeks ago the reform of the wholesale electricity market for the beginning of next year, 2023. In this context, we have seen several proposals from the Commission itself, but also from member states suggesting different approaches. The big question now is basically whether the wholesale electricity market should be redesigned or completely overhauled. As we said, the proposed options from the different stakeholders are varying a lot. Still, one could say that they have all the same reasoning at the center of the idea, namely that the measures must be taken to relieve the pressure of high electricity prices from businesses and households. Against this background, we would like now to pick up a bit on your brains and your thoughts to find out what are the options and what could be done and what kind of effects this might have on the market. So first question, what is the problem with the current market design and do we have a market failure? Yeah, very relevant question because it seems to be that many people think, right, that it completely failed, that it should be suspended or that it's broken. And here I, I would like to say I don't think so. So I really think that without the electricity market that we currently have, the situation would actually be worse. Um, and why is that? Well, uh, first of all, if you think at what the market is doing, it's just showing 
the problem, right? There is a supply shortage in gas. There is also several problems on the electricity side. We had low hydro. We have low availability of nuclear plants in France, right? We have a lot of supply issues, and as a result, prices are high. So, yeah, I mean, if you would suppress the market or suppress these prices, the problem would still be there, right? So, and how are markets maybe helping um, with this problem? Well, today, uh, France is short of electricity. So, thanks to this hourly market clearing, we have flows going to France <laughs> where it is most needed. Um, that means, in a way, that the problems of certain countries are spreading across Europe, but you could also say, in the opposite right that we're all helping each other and tomorrow maybe it's another country um, we don't have to go much back in time that belgium was really short of power and that thanks to these markets we were automatically helped during winter when when we were short so in a way these markets are organizing a kind of automatic solidarity that i think would be much harder to to get without markets because imagine uh, that we would all close our borders uh, we won't have markets anymore. And then maybe our governments would try to meet in Brussels and organize solidarity in another way. I think that would be a very difficult or, uh, conversation to have. <laughs> so in a way, I'm, I'm really happy um, we have these markets because they do bring some solidarity, as I said, but also some stability because I think the situation would have been worse. Uh, but I also fully understand that many people that don't know about how this all works and just look at the high prices, yeah, it's very tempting to say, right, the prices are higher than we like, so it must be the market that is broken, right? So I, I fully understand that logic, but I think we have the responsibility to explain people, right, that that's not really the case, right, that there have been other problems um, that are at the root of this, huh? and it's not about blaming the messenger, right? Because in the end, markets are simply a messenger of the current situation. And maybe then, um, so should we do something? Well, yeah, of course. Huh? I'm not saying that these markets that we currently have are perfect. They are somewhat incomplete. And we know also that there are several regulatory instruments that we have already used, but that probably need to be used more widely, right? So every crisis, uh, we are learning about how to go forward in this market project. So that's the only thing I would like is that we would preserve what we have built up the last two decades, because I think that's really valuable, but that we go forward and continue to improve that design because I, there are definitely some elements we can improve. And I think we will come back to that later in the conversation. Yeah, thank you. Very clear. So yeah, Pat, you already answered to my next question, which is related to the need to intervene in the existing regulation or the need for a new framework. Since you were talking about updating the existing framework, and to preserve what we have built so far, could you give us some ideas about short, mid and long term reforms that would function according to you? Yeah, so um, as we are in a real crisis, it's fully understandable that some emergency measures have been taken. And as always with emergency measures, sometimes they are well intended, but they create distortions, right? So uh, hopefully some of those uh, uh, emergency measures can be replaced by reforms, you know, that are a bit yeah, more thought through and we need a bit of time for that. So it's normal, I think, that we have this first short-term reaction. 
And then we have uh, what you in correctly described as a more mid to long term reform. And that is also happening. I only hope that for this mid to long term reform, we are t will take a bit of time because otherwise <laughs> the difference between these emergency measures and what we then call a reform is, is not too big, right? Because a reform does take some time to, to think about. So maybe this reform will also go in steps. I understand that there is quite some pressure on the commission to already come with a reform uh, beginning of next year. But I guess there is only so much they can do by then. So maybe that also could lead to additional reforms um, in the more mid to, to long term. Huh? And yeah, I think also we already start to see some ideas. I, I wouldn't claim they are my ideas, but by <laughs> discussing with many people, I do feel that there is, you know, I wouldn't say consensus, but at least there are some ideas that are gaining more supporters, let's say, on how that reform could look like. Huh? Concepts like contract for differences are often mentioned, capacity remuneration mechanisms, bigger role for forward markets, and also, I think, closer to DSOs, we also need to go further in mobilizing demand flexibility, right? And that consumer mm -hmm. side innovation that already started, but I think was not yet ready to play a major role in this crisis, but hopefully will help us prevent or be better prepared for future issues uh, we might face. Maybe going back to what you just mentioned about thinking through the the measures we're implementing, can you tell us a bit more about the, the risks? that are associated with uh, interventions in the market on a national scale. Yeah, so I guess then you are mainly referring to these emergency kind of interventions, right? And then it really depends on the measure. Huh? I've seen, <laughs> we've seen a bit of everything. Huh? So we've seen some countries in their intervening in wholesale pricing. There, the Iberian mechanism is probably well known, even though I really understand, right, that some countries have done these things. We've already seen the kind of distortions you get from doing that, right? So they they have forced power plants that produce electricity based on gas to beat at lower prices. So they are behaving in the electricity markets as if they can still procure gas at pre-crisis prices which helps to reduce the, the windfall profits from the others, right? The renewables or hydro, but at the same time is artificially lowering electricity prices in the Iberian market. And as a result, and that's then a bit unfortunate, consumption of gas is going up. And also Spanish and Portuguese consumers are a bit cross-subsidizing the French consumers by exporting some of that to France. It's clear that hopefully we can have other mechanisms in place that make it unnecessary to have this kind of mechanism. Another thing you see in some countries is that governments have capped retail prices. Now, again, of course, they have to do something to help this, their citizens, but capping retail prices applies to everyone. Also, maybe the consumers that don't need the help that much than the others, and also makes consumers not any more exposed to prices. So it means that the people that could easily save some energy are not incentivized to do that anymore. So that's a bit unfortunate. Huh? Yeah. There have been other interventions that uh, I would say are less distorting, like handing out vouchers, then you still feel the price incentive, but you are at least uh, helped a bit if you cannot pay your bills anymore. But yeah, that's still handing out public money. That's less distorting, but it's still putting a lot of pressure on public budgets. That's also not that sustainable. So that's why I think we really need to move away. Uh, I don't know if you saw that number. Uh, our colleagues from Bruegel are trying to keep track of all 
all the public money that has been allocated or earmarked. And in September, it was about 500 billion with the UK leading the pack. Now the UK has a new prime minister, so they cut back on their budget, but then Germany stepped up. So <laughs> now I think we are at something like 670 billion. I mean, that's really a lot of money. You would hope that some of that money would be used to maybe find solutions that are not temporary, but are more sustainable, like helping consumers to be less exposed to prices by investing in retrofitting of their buildings or, you know, installing PV or whatever. That is more sustainable than just handing out money to pay your bills. Huh? That's clear. This is a good transition to my next question regarding the Fit for 55 package. We know that the college leaders, the parliament and the council are busy with the work on the different files from this package. And in this context, a number of new elements have been added due to the energy crisis, I would give the keyword repower you here, which introduced both short and long-term measures. What do you think? How how can this particular, how can these particular legislations help the electricity market to function? I think that so far, you know, everything we were doing in the context of the Green Deal was to be green. <laughs> and we said in the margin, yeah, and it will also make us less dependent on imported fuels like gas. Now, this crisis is dependency crisis. We are discovering how costly it is to depend on imports of Russian gas. So this uh, 670 billions I was mentioning just before could be considered as an extra payment we are having to do right now due to that dependency that we created ourselves. So we we felt that we were relying on cheap Russian gas, but turns out it's not that cheap. After all, we're only <laughs> paying part of the bill now, it seems to be. So I think the support for reducing that dependency on fossil fuels, imported fossil fuels, is, is now, I guess, having much more support uh, across Europe. And that's what it is about, no? in a way, that Fit for 55 can really help accelerate investment in renewables, which is absolutely what we need. Also, to improve our security situation. It can also help to yeah, go faster in the electrification, for instance, of transport with electric vehicles. It can also accelerate the uptake of heat pumps for, for uh, heating of buildings. So all of this, I think, is in line with achieving those objectives and also will help us in this security situation we are in. So I think we, we need it even more than we needed it uh, in the past. Yeah, so maybe not that bad in the end. <laughs> I mean, looking at the positive side of the negative things happening. Um, you mentioned flexibility in DSOs before, so I would jump in with a more specific question here. Do you believe that time-stamped energy certificates, if they are incorporated in the electricity market design, could be a neat way to incentivize storage as well as flexibility and ultimately help to reduce system costs and improve energy security? Yeah, so I, I, it's a very specific concept, right? So that I, I, I thought always of these kind of uh, certificates. It, it reminded me of um, before the crisis, right? We often uh, had suppliers, for instance, offering uh, green energy, right? So you could choose voluntarily to to pay uh, sometimes even premium, right, to get green energy, and then. Um, the supplier would have these kind of certificates to, to show for, um, and that could be guarantees of origin or that could be really certificates from uh, support schemes. 
Um, and yeah, and then sometimes there were discussions like how green are these uh, certificates if the timing element is not the same, right? If you if you buy uh, cheap renewables that is produced in one moment, but you supply it in another moment, have you really, you know, done what you were supposed to do? There was some discussion on that. Um, but I don't know if today that's still such a big issue, right? So maybe it can help eh, these timestamp certificates. But today, to my feeling, going green is not something we do to pay premium. It's actually cheap. <laughs> the whole political narrative today is that the renewables are much cheaper than all the alternatives. So I think the the market reform is about giving um, you know consumers access to cheap renewables. And um, I don't know if we need certificates certificates for that or whether this concept I mentioned like a contract for differences would be a way to do it. Um, I always like to refer to the example of France where this summer um, in the financial newspaper Le Echo, that's where this name comes from, the renewable jackpot, um, mm -hmm. they, they published an article referring to numbers produced by the French regulatory authority, the CRE, who had calculated that um, the French state got about 8.6 billion thanks to the contract for differences they had signed with renewable developers. Probably never expecting they would get that amount of money because these contracts for differences were originally designed to be uh, a renewable support scheme, right? But they are two-sided. So if the projects get such a high market price that they actually don't need support anymore but can give some money back, you know, that's what these contracts do. Um, and if you think about it, um, you know, if governments sign more and more of these contracts and prices would go up again as they do today, um, that gives some money to governments that they could then use to maybe finance some of these compensations that today they have to finance from uh, their public budgets, right? So, yeah, I think to, in relation to renewables, the way we will maybe invest in these projects and the way we will give consumers access to these projects might also evolve um, after this crisis. Uh, Going back to what we said before, and um, we might have already touched upon it a bit, but still I would like to point it out here once more. The resilient energy market, and on the other hand, and the balance between short-term and long-term priorities. According to you, what is the best way to ensure that we achieve both objectives? Yeah, I don't know exactly what kind of balance you had in mind, but to my feeling, um, these two go a bit hand in hand. Huh? Um, I, I think I hinted to it, right, that um, this whole story on uh, security and, and green transition, that I think they are largely uh, aligned and maybe except... Um, so, and I also think, mar you know, the whole process on markets is really aligned with our green ambitions because one public statement made by some politicians was the market we created over the last two decades is not fit for purpose for a system with more renewables, for instance. I really don't agree with that. I think these short-term markets that we have created and integrated across Europe will even be more necessary in a system with renewables because the benefits from sharing on a short term, you know, 15 minutes or even shorter term, um, our, our resources is much higher if you have a lot of renewables. Uh, this is, I mean, the stereotype, right? Um, the wind is not always blowing in, <laughs> or the, the sun is not always shining in your country. But if you look over larger distances, this cancels out a bit, right? Um, but it only 
um, cancels out if you keep your borders open and if you have a mechanism to to optimize your system and and that is i think the market system so i think maybe where the 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 conflict is is more these emergency measures where i have a feeling sometimes they are more national and have a tendency mm -hmm. maybe to yeah to even create incentives to close your borders that's where i think um, the risk is but once we move away from that i think the two are nicely aligned and since you said a new framework, it's not needed, but rather improve our existing model. Could you point out for the listeners what, in your view, are the key gaps in the electricity market design? And in this context, the most important objectives for the new or the, the renewed or the updated market design? Yeah, so... I think the narrative of the revolution, right, was we need to decouple gas and electricity prices. And that's also one of the reasons this Iberian mechanism was introduced. But I think a more sustainable way to decouple these two markets is to simply rely less on gas to produce electricity, right? And that will happen automatically now. Um, the more we invest in renewables, the fewer hours in a year gas plants will be the marginal plants setting the price. So I, I think that will happen. Uh, we just need some time. And the best way to make it happen is to make sure that whatever we do is not going to create a, a bad investment climate for renewables. So I fully understand that we have all these clawback mechanisms and all that, but we should also make sure that that is not creating uncertainty for the renewable investments that we absolutely need. That's one point. The other point I said is that politicians rightly want to make sure that consumers are maybe not fully exposed anymore to these short-term prices and are having a bit better hedging or better insurances against these kind of periods with high prices. And then that's where these concepts come in, like contracts for differences. That's one way, um, especially if you would then allow uh, consumers to enter into these contracts. This has already been done, that governments contract large projects over 10 years, 15 years, but that part of the contract is also privatized through PPAs, and that has been done for big consumers, could be also be envisaged for smaller consumers. So it would mean that they have long-term contracts in place and also a guaranteed low price, at least for some of their consumption. And also some ideas have been floated on creating new mechanisms, affordability type of mechanisms where consumers would be able to enter into a kind of financial contracts that would protect them a bit from high prices. Yeah, so I think there are lots of ideas on what to do. All right, to wrap it up and to finish the discussion, my last question goes once again towards the principles and building blocks that should be at the core of the future markets reform. Can you summarize this for us one last time? Yeah, the ones I think I already mentioned is like completing our short-term markets with better functioning forward markets. That's a, an important one. How to do that to make sure maybe that retailers have more incentives to hedge their customers 
if you offer a certain type of contract with a fixed price, then you should also be hatched on the wholesale side. So that could be um, taken care of. Then also, I already mentioned these CFDs. Some people are concerned that these CFDs would distort the shorter markets, but they can be implemented in a smart way. There are several academics that already gave ideas on how to do that. Then I also think I shortly mentioned these capacity mechanisms. I think we'll have a, maybe a different role in the future. If you look at the clean energy package, they were tolerated, <laughs> you could say. <laughs> but for European regulatory framework was to avoid the uh, abuse of these mechanisms, but was not necessarily foreseeing that they would really be part of the target model. I think in today's context, where we're much more concerned that there won't be enough investments, maybe these mechanisms can play a more positive role. But if we do that, we also have to closely look at the design. These mechanisms should be open, not only for supply side solutions, but also demand side solutions. So, and then we should look at how that can be done in detail. So I think that would possibly be part of a reform, um, which would be quite a shift if you think about it in, in the way we look at our markets. And then I, at the very beginning, also said that I think this is an opportunity to go forward in the consumer side innovations. Maybe I can say a few more words about that. Right. My reading of the clean energy package is on, on that topic, that it was very much the paradigm was, let's try to get flexibility and then DSOs can use that flexibility, but that flexibility can also feed into uh, TSO balancing markets, but it was all based on price signals and voluntary. But now that we in this crisis are reminded that if we are really short, of gas or electricity, we might even have to do rationing and activate these, in electricity we call them load sharing plans, then I think there is a, quite a big gap between everything nice, voluntary price signals, and then, okay, if that is not sufficient, we, we will have to black out a whole village for a few hours with a rotating kind of plan. So somehow I feel that from between those two, there is still quite a gap that we have not yet explored. Like, Imagine we are short of power. Wouldn't it be nice that instead of randomly having to black out a village completely, we would be able to reduce all consumers to a certain basic level? But to be able to do that, I think we do not only need smart meters, we need some additional intelligence to be able to control to a certain extent um, the consumption of consumers. So I think we should also have that conversation. And I think that will be more acceptable and also maybe more feasible as we go towards electrification with heat pumps and EV. Because today, if you think about it, the flexibility we have at home is not great. But if you have a heat pump or if you have an EV in your garage in the future, that's a really high consumption that could potentially be used more flexibly. Yeah, so I think that's also quite a topic to discuss further. Yeah, a lot to explore. Uh, unfortunately, we are at the end. I think we could go on. Uh, so many different topics we touched on about. Um, thank you. I think we're only at the beginning of an exciting new period uh, of which the outcome is not clearly predictable. I think your input has helped a lot here to give a bit more clarity. So um, very much appreciated that you took your time and uh, joined me here today. Also, thank you to our listeners and don't forget to follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to make sure you don't miss one of our future episodes. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye bye.